Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome to the program my co-host, Caregiver Dave Nassani for the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. How are you, Dave? I'm awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. You're pumped up. Our guest, yeah. you know, it's uh, we're getting a Friday, but you know, Dave always learns new things about he's going to have his own uh, movie out soon. So he's got to find a director. So maybe it'll be our, 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 uh, our guest again, our guest today is Martin Gigi and Martin is the director of Paradise Cove. How are you, Martin? I'm great, man. Good to be here today. Good to see everybody. Absolutely. And I'll just start out by just saying, Every day in your life, did you always want to be a director? Is this something you grew up saying, I want to direct things? I want to produce things? That's a great question, man. I knew that this is what I wanted to do when I was about nine. And so it was just a matter of trying to figure it out. And I started out by just like editing other people, like stuff that, like you know, cartoons. I would tape off, off, you know, with VHS. I would tape it off the TV and I would like, edit Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry, for instance, into each other from one deck to another. And I would just hit pause and record, pause and record. That was my first filmmaking experience. But uh, no, I, and then I, 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 uh, my bicycle was stolen and uh, my parent, when I was 11 and my parents said, hey, here's some insurance money. And I was like, insurance, what's that? They're like, you know, well, everything's insured. You know? And I was like, wow, that's awesome. You know, more things should be stolen. And then yeah. I took that cash and I bought a Super 8 camera sound and a, and a projector and a little editing thing. And I became like uh, the nuisance of the neighborhood and just started shooting everything. I was really into documenting. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. But, you know, at one point or another, that became into like film school and then, and then life, right? Gosh, Martin, I did the same thing when I was your age. I had a Super 8 camera and I was bugging everybody about taking films. I took a, I made a movie about my dog. And because he was a, a drug addict and a pusher and all of this stuff. So maybe I should be a director. I don't know. No, you You're should all, definitely be a director. You already are. You're already I'm a director, already, Dave. I already are. Okay. That's right, funny. You know. uh, I was talking to the company I work for. I'll be doing some directing of the next educational video or a next video for the company because I can see a vision. I can tell a story. How important is that, Martin, as a director, as a producer, to be able to tell a story? You got to be a great storyteller. A great story, a good storyteller. You got to love selling, telling a story. And... It, it's when you're reading a script or when you're writing a script, it has to kind of possess you. And if it does, then you know that you can, you know, it possesses you because you can visualize it. And right. it really is a you know, cinema, right? It's a visual form. However, the characters, the actors tell the story. And so that's like, in my opinion, 99% of the battle or, you know, you win if you have great, and it doesn't have to be necessarily great actors. And that's a great question. Right. You know, it has to be the right actors, right? Because, I love movies where there's an actor that you never heard about before or, you know, and, but he or she encompassed the role so authentically that it sucks exactly. you into the emotional journey. Right. And it's, and, and it's that, that truth. That's what we bank on. You know, we, I, we, I, as an audience, you know, so I think the key thing uh, for storytelling is to always put yourself in the audience's shoes. All right, I was born in Brooklyn. I've been living on the West coast most of my life and I love Malibu been to Paradise Cove many, many times. Where did you get the idea of, of a thriller on Paradise Cove? And incidentally, I grew up uh, at my 92nd Street uh, on, on the west side, uh, Broadway in New York. And also when oh. I first came out, my <laughs> first trip to LA, the first visit to LA, I landed somehow on Paradise Cove. And you know that was predispositioned what I had always imagined California was like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People on the beach, the gals, the surfers, 
and everything is mellow. And, and when I got this screenplay uh, through a friend of mine, Nick Stiletti, who was one of the co-producers on, on, on the film, it was a screenplay that he had bumped into through a friend of his, Sherry Klein. And Sherry had written for Star Trek and some other TV shows, but she had never done a feature. And I was just attracted to the script because of the title, right? Titles are so important. Yeah, yeah. And Paradise Cove, immediately I just thought of, well, wow. And then she, he said, it's a psychological thriller. And I said, huh, at, in Paradise Cove? And he goes, just read it. And that was right around the time, it was a few years ago, if you remember the, um, those crazy wildfires. Right. And, um, and, and so I identified with the whole thing because my family had to evacuate during that time. We didn't live in Malibu, but we lived uh, in the Santa Monica, Santa Monica Mountains area. And so uh, we experienced that concept of being displaced and being in isolation, even before right. COVID, my kids had to learn that lesson, right? And so, and then when I um, read the script and it had the elements of those kind of 80s thrillers that I grew up watching. I love 80s. Yeah, 80s. yeah man. And so I, that sucked me in. And the concept of this like ex-star model living under a house in Malibu, especially <laughs> these days, like, you know, the, uh, yeah. the homeless pandemic in California, it made all the sense in the world. And I've always been attracted to self-contained stories. I love stories that are in a self-contained environment because then yes. it is all about the personality. Exactly. So, yeah, it could and be so that's story. what this movie does to you, right? It gives you yeah. like a little bit of claustrophobia too. Yeah. Now, when you talk about Malibu, also I think about Harry Bosch too, and I'm a right big on. fan of Bosch on Amazon. You like Bosch? Uh, yeah. It's, it's it's great. You, Dave's not seen Bosch because I'm a streamer. I I'll just binge watch all day long. Now, when you think about '80s, now so you're an '80s guy. What thrillers did you like in the '80s? Oh man. Oh well, you know I always liked the thrillers that were kind of undefinable that had some horror elements or psychological um, uh, mutations built into the story, like things like uh, like Christian Bale's first film, uh, um, American Psycho. I oh, like wow. that, you know, and I, I liked I liked even when it was commercialized, you know, by Kubrick uh, in The Shining. You know, movies that yes. are kind of undefinable that way uh, were were not really horror. But you know, I was also a fan of. Um, fatal Attraction and it, the borderline ones, right? Like the, the psychological thrillers, but climb into the horror area sometimes and come back. I guess Silence of the Lambs would be one of those too. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's again, uh, as I said before. Oh my, when you think Silence of the Lambs, wow, that's the wow. Then, then, then there's the creepy ones like Blue Velvet, right? Where it's like, huh? And then you know, the Palma made these. Films like Blowout and even Scarface, which was, you know, a, a, a biopic, but not really. But it had these horror elements, which is what sucked you in, you know, was these moments where things were just twisted. That's now, Dave, you're a Scarface fan, right? Sure. OK, absolutely. OK, OK. You know, we, we interviewed Suzanne Summers on the show uh, more than once and her house, her Malibu home actually burned down. And so she had to move to her Palm Springs house while she was rebuilding. These people in Malibu, they, they keep rebuilding, even though the fires come and they destroy them because, hey, it's Malibu. But how did you change the original story? I mean, to put your little twist on it and make it even more thrilling. That's a great, that's a great question. I'll tell you that in a minute. I'm just going to interject quickly <laughs> that a friend of mine who lives in Malibu 
is that guy who's a glutton for punishment, you know, and his, and what he did after his house had burned down twice, he decided to install his own like fire hoses. So when you get to his house, he's got these huge on each side of his house, he's got these huge fire hoses. And during that last fire, a few years ago, he jumped up on the roof of his house, sent his family to a hotel and turned on these hoses. And he spent 18 straight hours in a 360 degree circular fashion, blowing into the fires and he saved his house. So when uh, KTLA wow. and some other and some other news stations in LA flew over Malibu, there was this one house, right? And the helicopter came down and interviewed him. And he got on local TV, right? <laughs> it was like, that nobody, would do it. yeah, he was like wow. Noah's Ark, you know, how did, how did this happen in any event? So, so, it, you know, I, I'm a big fan that, that uh, writing is rewriting and that you have to do that all the way to the first day of shooting. And then you have to give it up and you have to hand it to the actors and let all possibilities use the script as a map and allow the actors to bring their experience and their imagination to these, to the story and to the roles. So right up until first day of shooting, I really wanted there to be deeper stakes. I wanted uh, it to be more, because uh, the original script, which was still wonderful, right. didn't have enough danger. So, uh, for instance, uh, the shower scene, and I hope you know, I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but there is a shower no, scene. It's, it's in the trailer. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. So that shower scene, which is quite extensive in the movie, uh, is a beast. I mean, that's one thing you'll remember from the film. <laughs> you know, if somebody says to me of all the projects you've ever done, you know, that's in the top five moments in a movie uh, that we right. shot. And we did, did it in one take with multiple cameras because it was... It was intense for the actors too, right? And we got it. Yeah. We got the, and then remember everybody awesome. on the set. Everybody intense on the watching set watching it too. Wow. Right on. And everybody on the set was kind of like, ah. and you know you get something when the, the script supervisor <laughs> said they're going like, oh, oh no, turn it off. So <laughs> Martin, so Martin, so is uh this is a remake. So Dave had that research. So this is a remake of this film. Or not. You know, I'm I'm unaware of of the original if there was one. I um, and if and if it's a remake, I never saw the first one, so I kind of like jumped into this. Say say I was I was like innocently, I kept it pure because I stayed true to this particular version. Gotcha. No, I was I was assuming it was a screenplay. I didn't know if it was. I looked yeah. up Paradise Cove. There's one earlier that was a movie. That's about. In eight, I don't even know where. Well, I thought Dave was saying it, so I'm just same storyline. Uh, yeah, so so, so let's go. Title, so, so. so Martin, kind of going into this process, you put your lens on now, right? You get the screenplay, you're directing it. You have to get the cast, you have to get get the vision, and you become the vision of this film. How do you do that? How do you put that out there? That okay, now I'm directing this. I need to find the right people to portray the roles of what that screenplay wanted. Great question. So there's two uh, options that a director can have. One is you go into it on your own. Second one is you keep the writer close to you because nobody knows those characters better than the writer. And the writer had had an experience like that. The house that we shot the movie in is her home, her actual home in Malibu. Oh my gosh. And uh, we did, two, so we, we, we created, we built a replica of the home also on a soundstage so that we could go back and forth to the real house for the exteriors with all the stuff with the ocean because you you know you don't want to cheat that and then the stuff that was inside actually the under the house stuff was all in, at the, you know at the Malibu and then we did the interiors so you wouldn't hear the ocean 
we, you know, we had clean sound, we recreated the home and it freaked her out. I brought her to set to answer your question. I brought her to set and I kept her close to me because I wanted to, and this one, I wanted to be true to the intent of the writer. I wanted whatever okay. she dreamt about to show up on the frame, right? And, and according to her, we came very close and in some instances, you know, captured it. So the casting process is always really tricky because my motto is, and what I've learned after all these productions over the years is that whoever's on set on the first day of shooting gets to be in the movie, right? Because there's, exactly. it's like no rhyme or reason, right? Like you could say, oh God, I want this big star in the film. And you make, you know, you get your casting director, you make an offer, you go to bed at night, you put out positive vibes and the next day she passes or he passes, meaning, you know, they don't want, they don't get the material or they don't identify with it. So we were really fortunate that one of the first people we went to was Mina Sabari. And this is somebody that Sherry Klein, the writer, had envisioned in, in the role and one of the lead roles, of, you know, Tracy. And uh, I thought she would be great, but we were, you know, we were pleasantly surprised and so excited when we sat down with her and met her, she got this. Um, and then, you know, to find that Brie, the crazy, the bipolar, insane, beautiful, gorgeous, um, mystical character Brie, um, we had a list of all the usual suspects, you know, 20 names of people that you could probably name here. Right. And Brie, and uh, Kristen Bauer was on the top, in the top three because of True Blood. And she had, she had like kind of visited this, this character before. And we were also thrilled when she took on the, the, the role. And, and then Todd Grinnell was the last one to come on because it was hard to find a guy who would play both you know, sides of this. And we went to a couple of bigger name actors, but they just didn't get it. And you know what? Nothing against independent filmmaking or big stars, but they have typically the agents like to protect their brand, right? Which is those stars. And sometimes stars don't take to independent films. Some do. Some realize that when you get into an independent film, you're gonna make a little less money, but you're going to do something that has heart, that has soul, and it's gonna be in what I call the idiot-free zone, right? You're gonna have <laughs> the ability to create and channel and do what you were born to do, what you love to do. And so we were, we were really fortunate that this cast had chemistry and had, had you know, chutzpah, had gongleonas, you know, cojones, <laughs> balls, yes. to take these chances on, on you know, because the lens wants honesty, sure. wants truth. And you, you, so, you know, if you're an actor or an actress, you have to be willing to jump off that cliff and know that you're going to somehow grow wings if you have, you know, a, a nurturing director and a great cinematographer and all of that, right? People who create an environment, which, sure. you know, I, that's what I like to do more than anything is create an environment where everybody can, can just do their thing. Sure. Okay. So you have the the writer right there beside you. There's a great chemistry. Uh, was there any resistance as you tried to improve her film? Sometimes there was only because uh, as a first time screenwriter, she was very married to the material. Huh. And, you know, she did great because she, we, you know, as a collective family, as a team, we got her to step outside and, and, and look at the options. And sometimes when uh, we both wanted uh, what we believed was right. You know, my answer was always, well, let's shoot it both ways. And then the good news is that in the editing room, smart. it can be more objective. So yeah. my hat's off to Eric Potter, who was a great editor. And, and he, he was the one that found, you know, the truth. And in the editing room, you have to go in, you know, 
with total yeah. objectivity and no ego. Right, yeah, right. Because yeah. that's the final rewrite. You can't fix it after that. So let's talk about the film. We kind of got started the shower scene. With, let's talk about, without giving okay. anything away, give us the premise of the film. So a couple from Detroit, Michigan comes to Malibu because the husband's mom has passed away and left him a home. So they have a house in Malibu. Imagine that when they get there. From crappy see that it's no. Yes, that's right. It's been in a fire and a mess or whatever. And, uh, and they have to rebuild it. And it starts, it starts there. Little uh, unbeknownst to them, there is a, uh, an ex-Hollywood model uh, who's now homeless. And she lives under that house. Oh. Without giving anything away, that, what could that mean? And wow. <laughs> you, think, you can just think, and that means you got to see the film. And there goes Martin. He just painted a picture. And <laughs> or at stopped. least at least you got to see the trailer. <laughs> right. right on. No, and you know what? Some trailers, those are tricky, right? Trailers, because sometimes they give it all away or sometimes you don't like it. I mean, I, I, I think I'm a, pr- and I don't know about you guys, I think I'm a pretty good, and I don't want to use the word judge, but let's say you can rate a trailer when you see it and you go right. like, eh, I'll, sp- I'll pass on that. And I think that very few times I've been wrong about that. I think that we look at trailers as sort of like, if there's something in it that tickles you, you'll give it a shot, you know? Yeah. And so I like this trailer. Um, and, um, and, and I, and, you know, I did it as an homage just for all the fans out there of thrillers. I did it as an homage to those movies that we loved from the eighties yeah. and some in the nineties, you know? All right. Well, so I'll give you my vote. I definitely am going to see it because the trailer sold it for me. And I'm not a fan of thrillers because I don't like to get all so scared and have nightmares, but I'm willing to see this one. Right on, man. All right. Thank so you. now let's go. Before, I want to touch on something else. What else, Martin, because you're the director. Have you been known for directing some of the other work? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I, I, I started out, I, I had... I had I, as a writer, I had done some stuff, you know, I had worked one point or another for SNL. I had written oh, wow. uh, this. I wrote the story for what became the wedding singer. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, as a, I started out as a writer, uh, I, I did a film uh, called my ex-girlfriend's wedding, which uh, became sort of subculture infamous because sure. Bernie Sanders was in it and he played a rabbi. Um, <laughs> and I also did a movie called uh, changing hearts, which had, had, um, uh, been in, 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 in uh, Golden Globe considerations and all. I'm trying to think, oh, The Bronx Bull, which was the sort of unofficial prequel sequel to Raging Bull, uh, oh, wow. I directed and wrote that. And then a few years ago, I directed a picture called 9-11, which people loved, but some of the critics hated because Charlie Sheen and Whoopi Goldberg were in it. And so they, even without watching the movie, sort of attacked it, but that was expected. But I'm proud of that movie. That was a movie about the heroes. Mm-hmm. Wow. And the people that sacrificed their own lives to save others. Were you the director of that? Yep, I wrote that and directed it. It was based on the award-winning play, um, Elevator. And um, I, I, you know, I, hmm, I oh, can I, I see nine eleven? Can I see it still? Is that available? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's out there. Yeah, you can stream it, watch it, via all that stuff. And uh, if you just send me an email, I'll. I'll send you. I'll send you a link. Okay. Okay. That sounds good. Send it to me too, Lee. <laughs> I will. <laughs> You're funny. That's a I did a, I did a, you know, I did a movie. I've done a few films that where I just, you know, I was gun for hire. I came and directed them. And 
they became like cult movies. That I know was I didn't intend for them to find a an audience that would carry them timelessly. In you know, so there was a move. There's a movie called uh, that National Lampoon put out called Cattle Call, uh, and that has become kind of like over the last 15 years, like a fraternity midnight favorite, and that's what they play. You know, after the pledges, uh, there was a movie that I did called Benny Bliss and the Disciples of Greatness, which again was like this little movie that nobody expected anything from. It didn't open, you know, I mean, people liked it, but it didn't have a big opening. And then suddenly like five, six, seven years after it came out, you know, High Times Magazine called it, you know, one of the top 100 stoner films of all time. (laughs) I was not stoned when I made it. Nobody on set, I don't think was, maybe, maybe not. And we didn't intend for it to be that, but you know what, God, God bless us and God bless everybody else. All right. So Dave's going to have a question. Then we want to find out where we can stream Paradise Cove. But go ahead, Dave, with your caregiving question. A thriller director. Now let's go and kind of break him down. Go ahead, Dave. I know. He's so young. When did he find the time to do all this stuff? So my wife had a stroke about 21 years ago, uh, threw a tailspin into our lives. Uh, she lost her speech, became paralyzed. She still can't talk after 24 years, but she can communicate non-verbally and she is paralyzed on one side, but she has this power chair. And now we travel all over the country just speaking because I'm uh, an advocate for caregivers. 30% of them die before their loved ones do. And so we, we, I've spoken on TV and stages, et cetera. I believe that if you're not a caregiver, uh, just wait. Uh, everyone's either going to become one or need one. So it's, it's a very important thing. It's like the tsunami coming. Uh, has caregiving touched your life at your young and tender age? Well, for sure, man. And I'm, I'm just uh, in admiration of your uh, love and your, your, your compassion and um, sending positive energy to, to you and you. your family. Uh, I, uh, I nursed my dad. Uh, when he was, when he was diagnosed with cancer and I, I nursed him every day and helped him. He had a, he was given a, uh, uh, expiration date, so to speak. They told him he was going to be gone in six months. And of course he, he, as he likes, as he liked to say back then, he cheated death. He lived an additional six years, which was a blessing. And, uh, due to your spent, great care, no doubt. <laughs> oh, thank you, man. Well, you know, he also had a, he, I, 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 he had with this will, right. It's extraordinary how you can really immediately, you know, see through everything right to the uh, will and of the heart and soul of a person when they're fighting the fight, that fight. And then the same thing happened uh, with my mom, you know, she passed away last year. Oh, uh, they, I mean, sorry. they lived an old, to, to a nice, nice old age. My mom passed away at age 90 and same thing, you know, I, I nursed her in her last, couple of years and and my family my kids my wife we went we would visit with her we would entertain her you know we're all musicians also and we would go over to the um to the senior facility and perform and and all that stuff and um i understand i totally get it um and i've i've been there for friends of mine you know as well over the years Uh, i completely understand that it's really it's part of life and it's perhaps the most part that we learn the most from Right. And, you know, your kids observed you doing that. When you get to be that age, they'll return the favor. Uh, goes yeah, around, yeah. comes around. Good Thanks, for man. I, from, from your mouth to God's ears, I'd like to hope so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Martin, best place we can find the film. Where can we go? 
Well, it's it's uh, video on demand and everywhere and anywhere that movies are played, Amazon Prime, you name it, everywhere that movies, you know, you just Google it if you can and you'll, you'll find it. Paradise Cove in the US, North America, actually all over the world, um, thanks to Quiver Distribution in the US. Um, and um, yeah, everywhere, and everywhere and anywhere. In, including Spectrum. That's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what I got. You know, it would have gone theatrical and because of COVID, they, they, oh, they opted not to because they were going to wait until the summer. I mean, AMC Regal is opening some of the orders up for some of the blockbusters in the summer, which is really cool. And I'd like to think that with the vaccine and everything that's being worked on these days, especially uh, in Israel, where they're creating, you know, cures for this thing as well. You, you'd, right. you'd think that at one point or another uh, will come back. I mean, this has been great, by the way, you know, being able to interact with individuals in this particular space, right. you want to call it Zoom, or you want to call it Google, whatever you want to call it. It's cool. And it's now a part, it's become a part of what we do, right? And it, I think a very important part of how we promote, talk and interact. Um, so they opted to go uh, without the theaters. And uh, so that's why it's everywhere else. <laughs> All right, Martin. Well, we appreciate it. Right. And uh, definitely uh, email, just go to neilhaley.com. I never even say that, Dave. You notice I never promote my website. Go to neilhaley.com and then shoot me an email. Uh, and I want to watch that film this week. That sounds great. I'll and do that to both. Caregiverdave.com as well. Caregiverdave.com. All right. Thanks, Martin. Beautiful, Dave. Thanks. Great meeting you. All right, guys. guys. Good was a Caregiver Dave celebrity segment. Take care. Right on. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensex enterprise level video management software, Perspective VMS is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit lensec.com. And now back to the show. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Author's Corner segment, and I'm excited to welcome the program Richard Capriola, author of The Addicted Child. Richard, how are you? I'm doing great, Neil. Thank you for taking the time to uh, invite me to your program and to talk about uh, adolescent substance abuse. So tell me specifically enough some of your background, then we're going to get right into the interview. 
Well, uh, I started out uh, over 20 years ago uh, doing mental health uh, work uh, in a regional uh, mental health center in central Illinois, where I worked for a crisis center. And I worked there for a number of years, uh, noticed that a lot of the uh, patients who were coming into the crisis center from the hospitals uh, had a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois, got some more education and training, became licensed as an addictions counselor in Illinois. I uh, continued to work for the uh, uh, Regional Mental Health Center for a number of years until I accepted a position with Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Menninger is a psychiatric hospital, and I was hired as an addictions counselor and worked for about 11 years with Menninger, uh, working with both adolescents and adults diagnosed with mental health and substance abuse issue. Um, I, I retired from Menninger a little over a year ago. Okay, so here's the biggest problem that I see uh, with addiction with children is it's basically a learned behavior. It's not, there, there could be some family background, but basically they've been exposed to something that leads to start to build that addiction, right? I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, Neil. Uh, there is a certain genetic component to all addictions. You know, 40 to 60% of a person's vulnerability may be linked to uh, um, genetics, but the remaining vul vulnerability is environmental factors. Uh, just like you noticed, uh, uh, a lot of it is a learned behavior. A child will oftentimes experiment with a drug. Uh, they will find that it gives them the feeling that they want, often, often to medicate an underlying issue like anxiety or depression. And then when they find it works, they continue down that road using more and more of the drug or perhaps experimenting with other drugs. And see, and that's the thing. It's the, there's gateway drugs in that, in that process. So what do they, what kids do more mostly, what addiction leads to the next addiction? Because there's a lot of addictions that kids can be exposed to early in the process. But what do you see with most of the kids that end up in drug, alcohol, and serious drug abuse as teenagers? What, what led them down that road? Well, many times it is um, association with other kids, uh, peers that introduce them to substances and they experiment with it. If they have a good feeling and they like it, they will continue down that road. Uh, many of them will tend to stay to uh, one substance rather than others, except boys. Boys are more likely than girls to become dependent on multiple substances. So you may have a young man that's drinking alcohol and using marijuana. Uh, they may at some point experiment with other drugs, but boys are more likely to become dependent or abuse multiple substances. Uh, girls tend to um, stay with one substance or another. Um, but there are many factors that, that, that lead to uh, a child using a substance. Typically at the very young ages, um, they tend to focus on a drug as opposed to experiment with a lot. So you may see kids, for example, just using marijuana. Uh, you may find some just using alcohol. Um, there are situations where they will use both. And sometimes as they get older, it leads to experimenting with other drugs like cocaine or perhaps prescription drugs as well. So how old are you seeing these kids start the process of having drugs and alcohol? What did you see in your research? Well, what we're seeing is the very young ages, um, you know, these, the eight, nine and 10 year olds are you tend, to, wow. tend, to, tend to focus more on inhalant use. 
So they may be getting into substances which are readily available around the house. They might be things like paint, they could be glue, uh, and, and they're using inhalants. But those tend to, tend to happen at the very young ages, which is very damaging because their brain is much more vulnerable being so young. As they get older, they tend to move away from using inhalants, and that's when they start to experiment with things like marijuana, over-the-counter substances, maybe maybe prescription drugs um, and alcohol all right so continuing with this process we talk about that happening exposed they're exposed to it. when do they finally experiment 12 would you say i would say it, it 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 it's that early teen years the 11 12 13 i think is when um they they tend to experiment with it now a lot has to do with their peers too if, if they're associating with peers that are using a lot of substances they're more vulnerable at, a, at an early age if they're hanging out with kids that aren't into alcohol or drugs uh, that may that may delay their exposure for a while all right so we're dealing with that that struggle and that challenge in so many ways. And let's go from that process basically next to um, when we talk about the addiction starts with, let's say, um, marijuana and goes to a, to a, to a more um, dangerous drug. Tell us that process then after that, when they finally become addicted to something like marijuana. Um, it, it, Sometimes it can just stay with marijuana. Uh, other times, uh, depending upon what they're exposed to, it may lead to exp ex uh, experimenting with other drugs. But what we're seeing in the adolescent population is not a high percentage of people uh, using things like LSD and cocaine. For example, only about 3% of seniors are, 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 are using cocaine and, and, and only about 4% are using LSD. Um, so we're not seeing high percentages in these uh, other drugs, uh, nowhere near the percentages that we're seeing, say, in, in marijuana or alcohol. Those are much higher percentages. Um, so we're not seeing kids move away from alcohol or nicotine or marijuana and get heavily exposed into the more heavy drugs like LSD, cocaine, and Oxycontin and things like that. That may occur later in life, perhaps as they move into their late teens or or perhaps into adulthood but if we're just looking at the at the school age population high school uh, kids uh, we're not seeing a high percentages in the hardcore drugs all right so what are the big the biggest concern of why you've written this book now you talk about the exposure what can we as parents do to stop our kids from getting to that addiction phase for the, so they're not exposed a lot of it has to do with peers but what can we do to help decrease that process of them getting exposed to these drugs at an early age? Well, the first thing I recommend is get a copy of my book uh, so that you have a little bit uh, a better understanding of how drugs work in the child's brain. Um, uh, what are the uh, uh, warning signs that parents should know about? What are the assessments and tests that a parent should uh, get if they believe their child is using a substances? What resources are out there? And, and, and also a little bit of knowledge on, on what we call process addictions. These are different than 
chemical addictions. The chemical addictions are the alcohol and drugs. The process addictions are more behaviors like uh, eating disorders, self-injury, and video gaming. And interestingly, what we noticed as a result of the pandemic, you know, 70% uh, of kids under the age of 18 are on their consoles right now because they're 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 isolated, so to speak. And 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 in in 2020 half of the children in teens are spending more than six hours a day online. That's a 500% increase over 2019. So parents need to get educated a little bit, know what the warning signs are. They can find all of that uh, about, about all of that in my book. If they want to develop and try to protect their child, particularly at the early ages. My recommendation is begin working on developing a, a solid communication and trusting relationship with your child. A relationship that's built on communication where you don't just don't listen to your child's words, you are able to listen to the feelings behind the words. You know, we're very good, Neil, at listening to people's words. We're not so good at listening to the feelings behind those words, but that's a skill we can all learn as parents. And, and, and my workbook that accompanies this book has uh, exercises and information that helps parents become better listeners. You need to develop that foundation of communication and trust with your child. So if they are having a problem and they are turning to alcohol and drugs, they feel comfortable coming to you. All right, Richard, this is just great information. I think that the process, so when you see children addicted, how bad, what kind of things does it lead to as adults? Incarceration well, for sure, would you think? What I'm seeing is, uh, because I worked in a psychiatric hospital, what, what, what I was seeing that in almost all of the cases where a young man or a young woman uh, was coming into the hospital um, and was abusing alcohol or marijuana or cocaine or, or, or any substances, there was an underlying mental health issue that was driving that abuse. Uh, it might have been anxiety. It might have been anxiety, might have been depression, um, uh, and 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 that leads to the point that um, through an assessment, if you discover as a parent that your child has an underlying psychological issue that may be driving their substance use, you can't just treat the substance abuse. You need to treat the underlying issue as well. Otherwise, that child is likely to continue to use that substance to medicate uh, a feeling like anxiety or depression. Wow, <laughs> that's really deep, Richard. It's really deep to, to, to look at and say those things and that, that it's mental health. And then that leads to joblessness, more addiction as an adult, and really living a, not the best life. So as early as we can, when we see our kids struggling through this, we need to get them help before they get on these drugs and stuff like that, especially when we think there's some underlying condition that could cause them to self-medicate. Yes, I would agree with that. The earlier we can intervene, the earlier we can uh, discover these issues, whether it's uh, alcohol and drug use or, or, or if it's tied to a mental health issue, the sooner as parents um, they discover those underlying issues, the sooner they can begin treatment and hopefully get these issues under control while their child is still an adolescent, because if they don't, uh, it, it may very well follow them into adulthood. All right. So the best place to connect with you, Richard, is go where? 
go to the book's website, which is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. You'll be able to uh, read endorsements and book reviews. You'll be able to order both the book and, and, the, uh, and the parent workbook off of that website. You can also contact me and send me messages. Um, so the book website is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. And uh, what has been the feedback so far from families that have read this? Um, I haven't heard uh, from very many, uh, although uh, uh, people who have reviewed the book, including some psychologists, um, um, psychiatrists, um, there have all been very positive reviews. I've had tremendous feedback from people who have uh, wanted to host podcast sessions for me to be interviewed. Uh, so I think not only is there a big demand for, for knowing about this information, for gathering knowledge, I think there's an intense need on the part of parents to search for help and to have a roadmap on what to do. And, and basically that's what my book is. It's a roadmap um, uh, to help parents get an understanding of adolescent substance abuse, know what the issues are and where to turn for help and what to do if they need help. Well, fantastic. Thanks for stopping by and everyone needs to check out your book and you're providing great information. I'm sure families will not speak about that because what the hardest part is families that are suffering are fearful to tell others they're suffering. So go pick up Richard's book. And that's the thing. You're not going to get the feedback from the families because the families that have an injected child, they don't want to tell you because they're going through a lot of hard stuff now. So thanks for stopping by. You're very welcome, Neil. Thank you. Thank you very much for, uh, for hosting the interview today. You'll listen to Neil Haley's show and we'll be back in just a moment. Celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mike Velarde Show. I'm excited to welcome to Mike Velarde. Mike, how are you? Uh, again, thank you for your services. We don't talk about how much of a rock star you are, but after our guest last week, we found out how much of a rock star you are. But again, you're, you got the verified check mark, so you're a celebrity. So check out his Twitter, uh, Mike Velarde, and he is the celebrity uh, verified account based on running for Congress. But man, your bio. I mean, let's just talk about you today. I mean, honestly, and then we'll talk a little bit about other stuff, but let's talk about you. I mean, you don't really highlight who you are your website doesn't show it because you were running for congress but kind of give you your background for people that have not tuned in the mike velarde show that listens to it all the time on our syndication and stuff sure um where do you want to start go <laughs> all right well let's see um my high school wrestling ability got me to college college i was a, i was a uh, you know I, I graduated with honors i decided to go to grad school came out with an mba Worked for the Ford Motor Company, great job for a couple of years. They were gonna cut back. So I went over to the government, became a treasury agent. 
um, worked for the criminal division of the IRS. In that capacity, I ended up being a 9-11 responder. I got assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force for a while. I then went to the El Dorado Drug Task Force. I ran a couple of programs for them, the, the QRP program, basically going after bad tax preparers, that sort of stuff. I'd make the decision who to go after criminally and who we go after civilly. Um, worked a lot, got, got details of the Secret Service a lot. So I did a lot of dignitary details, protected people like Ishak Rabin from Israel, Al Gore one time. Um, you know, the presidents of different presidents, kings, queens, I mean, a lot of different cool details. That was nice. And then uh, 2010, when I retired, oh, oh I, I, I left out something. I did write a book. When I was on the drug test, I decided to write okay. a book. I wrote a book on Bible prophecy in 2006. That book got me on television, uh, did a TV show, an hour TV show with a guy named Rick Jordan, who was the largest producer of Christian programming in New York on Long Island at the time. And he got me on a, a cable program and I was on cable television for 10 years. And that's when I met people like Kamal Saleem, Zachariah Renati, you know, Islamic terrorists who Zach had killed 234 people. Kamal, he won't tell you how many he killed. And met a lot of interesting people doing the television show. I booked your show too, Mike. You did I mean, your radio show. I booked the radio show. Yep. yep. Was it on? What station was that on? It was on Channel Twenty One. No, I mean Channel. for the radio, the radio pot, the before they call the podcasting. You were on what radio? I think you were on Talk Show. Yeah, I was on. I, I did a lot of guest appearance on the radio. Did a lot of. Um, you did a live thing on Talk Show, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I even did Alex Jones. I did. Did a lot of them. I did a lot for the. But being your own show, you had your own radio show as yeah, well. I booked definitely. Michael Lord. I mean, I booked uh, Robert Selly on that your show. Yes. I booked a couple people through Jerry. Yeah, Jerry. Yep, yep. As well as my TV show, which went very well. And um, you know, then I got a great job at a law firm down here. Started their tax division. They ran into financial problems, went out of business, and I went out on my own. And I've been helping people for the last nine years get out of their IRS issues with a lot of success. And that's worked out really well for me and for my clients. But and, you took uh, you took a back seat from that business to try to uh, become a congressman, which again was a great experience for you. But I want to take you back. You always are selling yourself too short, Mike. Again, we're here with Mike Velarde on the Mike Velarde show. And we're really focusing on Mike Velarde this week because one of his guests had to postpone. We'll look forward to that next week, but I really want to kind of delve into this podcast, making it a different direction. It was really pushing your Congress run, which was an ex- experience beyond belief for me as well in my, in that journey from that year. But not like to talk about 9-11 being on the 9-11 task force. Again, you still already still are, considered a nine elected uh, first responder. So you are dealing with nine 11 money, meaning money that should be, you're taking on different medical stuff and things like that, that finally nine 11 will pay at one point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I got a law firm to represent me because I do have some issues um, from, from, I was at the fresh kills um, landfill looking for body parts. What they were doing was they were taking over the debris. And a lot of times it was still smoldering. You know, they they put it all on trucks, bring it over to the landfill, dump it, and we'd go through each load to see if we could find any any body parts that they could identify. See that's just that's just unbelievable. And so, Mike, going through that, did you ever meet the nine eleven photographer that uh, Gary Susan ever? 
No, never met him. Okay, he's he, he's the 9/11 when museum in uh, that's not it's not that end up I think going end up at the 9/11 place, but he was one of the photographers. Let's Google him. We'll have to get him on. I'll reach out. His health is really in bad shape because he was too with the first responders dealing with all the stuff um, with 9/11. But he is a museum. It's a fantastic museum. Uh, Jill uh, introduced me to her. Jill Jill Cooney Coney that she is yeah. uh i don't know if you know who jill is jill is done a book huh she wrote a book yep yeah. we should have her on our show have her on the show see I, i'm six degrees of neil neil knows everyone i think mike right. finally figured that out about me right. stories and who i meet and now with clubhouse which i am trying to sell mike to go to clubhouse would be great <laughs> to talk about it but it's getting it's it's linkedin on steroids LinkedIn 10X, that's what I call it. LinkedIn 10X, it's going to be gigantic until someone screws it up, but we'll go with that ride at least till March with having a blast on there 24-7. I'm not on 24-7, I'm definitely on in the mornings every day and all that, but let's go back. So you talk about the struggles you went through. How did you become work for the IRS after that? You're kind of a, you know, part of, uh, you're really, you're, you're, yeah, you're like big time CIA, CIA type. What the heck made you want to go in the IRS? Well, my father worked for the IRS. So when I was at Ford, they were, they were talking about taking us out of the field. I would get a new car every three months. I had an expense account and they were talking at the time about making us basically phone jockeys. We just sit in front of the phone and call everybody as opposed to actually going, meeting them, sitting down with their business and having a car to ride on. And I didn't want that. So my father said, listen, why don't, you know, they have positions in CID. Why don't you apply? So I took the test. I applied. You got to, you know, you get a badge and a gun. And what, what attracted me to it was the fact that you could retire at 50. And being wow. in law enforcement, you also got more pay. So I got an extra 25% above my salary for what's called law enforcement availability pay. You know, so when you do the search warrants, the arrest warrants, you know, when law enforcement, you, you're going to, you're going to, you're not, you just right. don't work an eight hour day, especially if you're like on the drug task force, we'll do surveillances all the time. It's common to work a 12 hour day in those situations. So when we did protection details with the secret service, we work 12 hour shifts instead of having three eight hour shifts that have two 12 hour shifts. So you work eight to eight. And so, you know, that money would compensate for your, the eight right, hours right. that you work. So what attracted me really was two things. I knew I had a badge, which would keep me out of speeding tickets, which it did. And um, I retired at 50 years old, which I did. Exactly. I mean, so how, how, how often in life can you get a nice pension at 50? I mean, I'm going to be retired uh, 11 years already. I retired 10 years ago, you know, back in 2010. I mean, it's going to be 11 years in August. So how old are you, Mike? I'm 60. You look like you're 40. Yeah, I'm 60. I'm 60. 60. Okay. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you early fifties. Okay. But I mean, especially going through what the nine 11 stuff. So the secret service, that's another story. I, I, I mean, we could have set segments just on your show about your story. I'm taking you all these things, but see Mike's so humble. He doesn't talk about these things. Right. 
He doesn't. So, but I want to go into the tax thing because that again, with Mike taking time off his business, I can imagine the same thing me taking time off my business. And I kind of have uh, with a day job. And I'm again, that's one thing that clubhouse made me do is finally not try to hide who I am. My day job is with a company called Lensec, a video management software, even though I'm a national city gate radio host, multiple businesses because of our country and because of our government, we can't just do our love. And that's not fair. And that's what something I would say to President Joe Biden today. Yes, President Biden, you say all these different things. You want to talk about jobs, jobs, jobs. What about the what about the small business person? What about who makes this economy that creates jobs, creates opportunity, creates business? You're you you and even with President Trump, same thing. We talked about the worker. What about the entrepreneur? What about the person that when COVID nineteen hit that literally thought, "What am I going to do in my life?" Well, I have a full-time job as all as well, but I thought I was going to lose that job at Lensec when COVID-19 hit. Just that's for another topic, another time, another place. But full disclosure that, you know, you're grinding away all these things and you still have to grind. But for when we talk about taxes, how many people need help with the IRS? You're the guy. But there's ones like, you know, the competition out there, Mike, with old Optimum Tax Solutions. What makes you different? See, I, I'm going to target that. My company is going to target to beat to take all those Optima Tax Solutions clients come to Mike Velarde instead. But what's the difference with you? You know, you have trouble with the IRS. What do you do? You call Mike because Mike worked for the IRS. Right. You different than the Optima and stuff. Yeah. Well, there's really three differences. One is you get my personal cell phone number, so you can call me anytime. So if the IRS, and there's no longer Alan Thick. God rest his soul. I interviewed him, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, and and yeah, um, so you know he was the voice of the Optimum Tax, and they've not survived since that since they don't have Alan as the spokesperson. But right, so that, I mean that's the first thing. The second thing is, I'm instead of I'm going to charge you one fee for whatever it takes. So I'm not like a lawyer where I'm going to try and and uh, I don't have a vested interest in trying to spend more time on your case and, and, and run up your fees for you. You know, I have a vested interest in getting a solution for you as quickly as possible. And third and most importantly is my track record. I mean, I have gotten amazing results for a lot of clients. I mean, recently in New York on an appeal, I wiped out a million dollars each for two doctors. Holy cow. In taxes and interest, totally wiped the slate clean. Um, I settled an offer in compromise for one woman. She owed a quarter of a million dollars. We got the IRS to accept 500. Why did they get to that level, Mike? Well, it depends on the situation. Well, with the, with the doctors, with that situation, what happened was um, there was a lawyer that was stealing the payroll tax money. Okay. They were involved in a partnership and this lawyer was running the office and he was actually stealing the payroll tax money. And I was able to prove that after, after a six year period of time, he transferred 843,000 into his personal, uh, a company owned and operated solely by him. That was payroll tax money that never went to the government. So as a result, those interest and penalties added up to- So people that work for the company, whoever's the business manager or a certain person could steal the money and say yeah. they pay taxes and instead kept it for themselves. Right. And what he did was said he hired an IRS representative to make sure that the IRS would find these two guys guilty. And they ended up coming to me because I worked for one of the doctor's cousins. And then I was able to win it on appeal for them and prove that they wouldn't, they were nothing more than pawns that were set up. And, you know, that was, that was a big case. Um, 
And it was, you know, that's the kind of stuff I do. I mean, I'll get personally involved in it. I'll, I know the ins and outs. I mean, I worked in New York. So in that case, I knew they, they knew me in appeals. I knew who I was and they could see that, you know, we had the proof and we were honest and they gave us the benefit of the doubt. So looking at that, okay, I'm, I'm cool. That's great. But what about Mike, the person, let's just say that owes the IRS money, couldn't pay bills because of COVID-19. They had a business, a very successful business, and that just took a crash because the, let's say they're in the hospitality business or the restaurant business. And now it's time for them to owe their money in taxes coming into this year, April. April's coming and they know they're going to owe the IRS a ton of money. Is that someone that, for you to call, for the call you? Yeah, well, there's only one way to settle your IRS debt for less money, and that's the offer and compromise program. It's the only that's the only way to do it. So you have to follow, and 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 that process can take you about a year and a half. But you're an expert in this to yeah. help you through the process, so that it's not going to cost you as much in fees yeah. as other people. Where you're just yeah, like, have, how have, many people are out there, Mike, right now, especially in your former New York City? That's just done. They're in so much trouble because of what happened. Well, you know, the IRS has been working from home. They've, they've been really backlogged. I mean, I've had cases that I had hearings back in May of last year and still have, I'm waiting for the official paperwork to tell me that we won the case because of their procedure. Once it goes to the IRS, let's say it goes to appeals, and then the appeals office has to write it up and it has to go to management. Management has to send it to IRS counsel. It has to be looked at by all the IRS lawyers before they can give you a final okay on it. And with COVID-19, it's messed everything up. Everybody's from home. No one's in the office. Things just are not getting done. Are you able to contact the IRS yourself directly compared to other people? Yes. I mean, I still have contacts there so I could, I could get, you know, I can get information if I need it. Um, and of course, when you have a certain case, you deal with the, with the person handling that case. So you'll deal with them directly. So if it's an RO or revenue officer who's trying to collect money, I'll have their personal number and call them directly. Well, Taxes, I, you, when, the IRS. You, when, you, when you start with a book like that, you're going to get some blowback from the federal government. So no, but you can just talk about different ideas about the IRS and how you need to be knowledgeable what your rights are. A lot of people, that, but again, Mike, you're going to get some blowback from some of the shows we did in 2020. So, right. Have you anything come on that yet? No, no, so far, so good. So okay. Far. Just make sure you just hide yourself. Okay. Well, it's good. Great Mike Velarde show. We'll talk care, take care, and we'll talk next week. Thanks, Neil. All right. Well, yes, next week. Okay.